This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 496, for February 23rd, 2016. Folks, welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. And joining me on what will be a podcast of outrage this week is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. Grr. Grr. <laughs> also joining us, return guest, who was just with us a few weeks ago to talk about uh, being an international spy, or rather how to cross national borders safely with your data, Rich Mogul of Secure Osis and a writer for Macworld Tidbits and many other fine publications. Hello, Rich. Hello, Glenn. Thanks for inviting me here to express my anger. Uh, yeah, so this episode... It's going to be a very cathartic podcast. Yeah, so um, I'm going to get one small thing out of the way, and then we'll go to Outrageous Error 53. We've talked about this in previous weeks, the, the bricking issue of uh, iPhones that had their Touch ID sensor either disturbed or replaced, and then you got a mysterious error. Uh, after a lot of different discussion by different people about whether this was valid or not, and uh, and so forth. Apple came out and just said, oh, we're sorry, release an updated version. And they're doing exactly what a lot of people, including myself, suggested, which is disabling Touch ID, uh, essentially removing the ability to use fingerprint sensor if it detects this instead of breaking a phone. So thank you, Apple, for doing something that seemed to be very pro-consumer. Uh, there we go. Uh, so I've got an opening statement. <laughs> I'm the host <laughs> of this podcast, so I'm going to start and then we'll all get into it. Is, uh, I believe we are facing... Uh, a critical point in American democracy. I think we're facing a critical point in the notion of our own ability to have privacy. I was talking to my son recently. I was bringing up, there's a song that Pete Seeger made popular. It's a German song called Die Gedanken sind frei. It's a, a poem sent to music. My thoughts are free. And you go listen to that song and listen to Pete Seeger's explanation on an old album of his. And he talks about how my thoughts do not cater to Duke or Dictator. My thoughts are my own. The things inside my head are things I am allowed to believe. No one can affect that. No one can change that. Take that away from me. I feel like we are facing a critical juncture that is not about technology, but is about the right of ourselves to have private thoughts and expression, whether inside our head, which so far cannot be taken from us, but barely, or expressed in a form, in digital form, that we want to lock up and keep anyone, the government, spies, criminals, uh, lawsuits, whatever, um, authorized and authorized parties away from alike. And we're at a point where the baby is about to be thrown out with the bathwater. It's an issue about our fundamental right to privacy, uh, something that I think is uh, was our country was founded with. Um, I think some of the earliest laws of this country have to do with that, or the Bills of Rights, uh, the Bill of Rights, uh, many amendments that follow. I think uh, the fundamental doctrine of conservative philosophy that I would expect to be um, upheld here as well about privacy, and uh, and that's where we're at. Uh, and we're talking about iPhones. <laughs> so that was my op- <laughs> that was my opening statement. Well, Glenn, I um, in some ways I I share your opinions. Um, I'm not going to quote any hippies. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, God, you know, hippies. first of all, you know, this is really interesting. I mean, there actually is not a right to privacy in the Constitution. Uh, there's very clearly not a right to privacy in the Constitution. There's a lot of things that hover around it, but of course, I don't think our forefathers could have, you know, predicted a lot of this current situation. But I agree completely. I mean, this is being, you know, the FBI has done a masterful job of positioning this as lefty tech companies versus law enforcement. And the true matter of it is, this is our government versus our fundamental freedoms as Americans. I cannot believe the Tea Party is not up in arms on this. I can't believe Fox News is supporting the government on this one. Uh, I can't believe anybody from either the right or the left um, basically you know, is, is supporting this. Uh, what I see occurring in the news, and you know, we've not done a lot of setup on it for you know, exactly what the current status of the case and everything is. <laughs> we'll get into but that. I, I honestly feel like I'm watching my American ideals and freedom die in front of me, and I'm somebody who's dedicated my life to public safety and public service. This is it's, it's killing me. This is the Constitution doesn't. I mean, this is true. The Supreme Court has developed over time doctrines of privacy that are not present in the Constitution. But the Bill of Rights, the the freedom of search against unwarranted seizure. You know, there, there's there, the even the freedom against having soldiers quartered in your house. That is a right of privacy. And I think the court has done a great job in not expanding but defining what those roles mean as technology develops. Even the technology of how you know, not even technology like digital technology, but the technology of reproduction of of the freedom of the press, of so many things. I think we've actually kept the pace. And uh, I will report, uh, I do not listen to Rush Limbaugh, but Josh Centers of Tidbits uh, reports that on Monday, Rush Limbaugh spent two hours very eloquently defending Apple and this position. And I thought, I'm happy to agree with Rush Limbaugh. I think Glenn Beck is on Apple's side as well. Oh, I think think so. I mean, 
Yeah, the Tea Party thing. I would think that you'd have people in the streets about this who want to, you know, the government seizing your, uh, you know, the terrorism thing muddles it, but it's still it's the ability of the government to get its hands on anything that we have. In a post-Snowden age. Well, Rich is right that this is the case that they've been waiting for. And I think the timing is especially good, too, because, you know, it is an election year. And because this case is tied up with terrorism, the people on the right and the conservatives who should be for, you know, getting government out of, you know, thing, places where they don't belong um, can't really take a huge stand about that because, you know, terrorism is very emotional and nobody wants to be seen in an election year as soft on terrorism or not wanting to support law enforcement that's been a huge issue in this in this country lately. You know, you're on the side of law enforcement and you know, some people are being seen as against law enforcement when really they're just, you know, looking out for the rights of citizens as well. So, yeah, this case is tailor-made and um, Pew Research did release a poll that said so far um, most Americans are on the side of the government and think that, that, you know, Apple should just unlock this phone and when, why aren't they unlocking this phone? What's their problem? So a lot of it, I think, is just people not really understanding the nuance of what Apple's being asked to do, why it's different than what they've done before, and how those differences really, you know, are the crux of this case and why this is an overreach and this is a dangerous precedent. Yeah, I'll point out that 25% of, of Americans don't know that America declared independence from Britain uh, in a Gallup <laughs> poll a few years ago. So the informed part of that, it's interesting to do a poll on the issue, but it's also, it's like first thing to have a five-hour education course to understand the issue. Yeah, like being on a, people aren't even caught up yet with what's happening. Yeah. I, I don't want you know that makes us that makes us come across as elitist and this is how we lose this argument. Oh, I'm not no and, let me let me back. I'm not being elitist. I'm talking about being informed. It's difficult. An informed populace is difficult. Our education system is broken. People we have a huge immigration immigrant population that doesn't necessarily go through the American education system at all. Isn't trained up on it. And we're asking people. Do you understand an issue that involves both fundamental issues of technology and encryption that are actually relatively subtle, plus American democracy and constitutional history? What do you think about that? I'm like, oh, let it me take a college broke. course first a and come back. A lot of it happened over a weekend. Like, yeah. you know, I, I don't fault anybody it's, for not yeah. being like on top of it, like it's the not, super nerds on Twitter are. It's not ignorance. It's a lack of knowledge, which are two different things. It's not that there's people are stupid. It's that they lack. You have to be so informed. And I think the FBI is using that again against the American people. Well, and again, yeah, I mean, the, the FBI, you know, the senior political operatives there, and and let's be honest, when I, – I, I doubt even all FBI agents agree with this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm actually very supportive of, of the mission of the FBI and even of the mission of the NSA and other government entities, you know, and um, I, I don't support most of what Edward Snowden did. I think some of the disclosures where they were, you know, illegally, for example, listening to Americans, that's what I, that's what I would expect a whistleblower to say. But a whole bunch of other stuff about what we're doing in the rest of the world. Guess what? That's you know that's what we pay the NSA to do. <laughs> that stuff should not have been revealed. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it that way. Perhaps uh, I wish we lived in a, a nicer global you know cit- as citizens, but unfortunately we we're citizens of where we live, and and as a result, and unfortunately the world is a mean place, and people have to spy on each other. Enough said on that part. So, but going to this particular issue, these there are operatives and and the director and, and a bunch of the seniors. They are political operatives as much as they are or have been in their past lawyers and FBI agents. You don't get that high without being there. Uh, they planned for this. They positioned it. Uh, they have their speakers that they're sending on to the various news stations. They have, um, you know, I mean, this was they. they Did have you the guys see the blog post up. by James Comey? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll link that to the. This was all, you know, it's not a conspiracy theory. This was planned because they told us they were planning it. Those of us who've tracked this issue have been, tr- you know, tracking it for a while. We knew something like this was coming. They finally got the case that they needed where they could tie it to terrorism uh, and and generate these emotional responses so that you have a, you know, computer expert like Dave Kennedy up on uh, some of the news stations and people screaming, do you want to have to notify the families in the next terrorist attack? And, you know, and the, once you degrade the argument to that point, then – that's an emotional response, and we can't, you know, necessarily discuss all of the issues. Um, it, it's very chilling what's occurring here. I don't think the FBI is doing this because they want to, you know, they're trying to amass power. That's not what this is about. I think at a certain level, they believe that this is what they need to do to get their jobs done. They think the American people don't care, and you might there's this culture there of, you know, what we're righteous and we're doing the right thing, so you should give us these powers. 
Right. And it's our job to say no. I feel like there's, you know, there's a, a, a deal here where it's like, are they, there's a, either incompetence or mendacity. And I guess I'm being unfair. There should be a third one, which is compartmentalization and blinders. Yes. Like, the, you know, the question is, is the FBI, if Comey's saying these things, let's assume he's a smart man, which he should be at, at that level of power. Let's see what his advisors are. And all the people on the issue where they've, they've structured this to kind of break through this encryption uh, blockade that they've been complaining about since Apple and Google uh, added these uh, stronger features in uh, fall of 2014. That was a watershed, and you started seeing a lot of public officials speaking out, which made me think it was a good move that Apple and Google had made because of all these people speaking out. Um, so incompetence would be they don't truly believe or understand uh, or accept that uh, by forcing this move that they essentially break uh, this option for everyone in the world, including their operatives, if they were using those phones, including uh, corporations that do business in other countries, uh, that this isn't something that affects human rights. Like that would be incompetence. Um, mendacity is they know and they just don't care because they're trying to achieve a goal. If we say compartmentalization or, or blinders, they say, look, uh, we're asking for a specific thing. We're in America. I saw, uh, God, what was it? Was it the um, the Bratton, the head of the uh, New York Police Department and uh, the head of their counterterrorism group had an op-ed in the New York Times on the 23rd. And uh, I believe it was there that they said, uh, look, look, if China asks Apple to say no, it'll go through the U.S., you know, the, the government. I'm like, China has workers there. China has its operations there. China, I mean, uh, Apple does. Apple cannot simply say to China, I mean, it's one thing if your company does business entirely in America and sells abroad. It's another when you're an international corporation like Apple with its products being used in every country in the world. It was, it was, and I don't believe Bratton is naive or incompetent. I believe that is actually, uh, you know, openly mendacious. And I will, I will say that because he's a, an official and I can, I can get away with saying that because uh, without fear of contradiction is that I cannot believe, uh, and I haven't seen the FBI make that statement, to be honest. I haven't seen, uh, and there's another New York Times story uh, in which it looked at uh, talked to you know unnamed sources in the Obama administration, many of whom are well aware that if this happens, part of the fight that was going on inside the administration, that China would be next in line to ask for these kinds of unlocking. So you know I, I think there is a high level. I think the best complexion you can put on it is a high level of compartmentalization, where the FBI and the Obama administration believes that they can contain this and use it effectively to the gr degree they want to, and it won't enable other countries. Actually, I think it comes down to to something else and and it's partially I, I believe it's just because um so as as glenn personally knows because we've known each other for years i have a weird background and have done various things in my life among them i was a, a federal um disaster responder who was trained specifically and assigned to a team to deal with uh terrorism and uh, if there was ever going to be a, a large wmd terrorist event I was supposed to be one of the people to go in and on the medical side and assist with that. And this was years before local fire departments had decontamination abilities and, and those sorts of things. And the whole thing was actually based on the Amsham Rico uh, subway attacks where they used uh, oh, right. Yeah. Right. Wow. So where they used Sarin. Oh, Sarin, and, rather. Yeah. And that, that kicked off the, the creation of these teams, which for the most part don't even exist anymore um, because of all the, the funding post 9-11 um, has gotten local responders uh, which is you know, a far better option. But anyway, so I, I'm trained in this stuff. I've worked at the federal level, uh, at least on a part-time, lo very low-level you know, volunteer basis. I, I get paid when I deploy, but I volunteer to do it kind of a thing. And what it comes down to something, I, I think what a lot of this is, not on my watch. And that's the phrase we use, not on my watch. When you are in that position where your job is to defend the public, from these really, truly horrible things that can occur and will occur, okay? I'm not going to minimize the fact that if, you know, various terrorist organizations would love to carry out large-scale attacks here in the U.S., they would, totally. Um, there's no question of that. And I think our agencies have done actually a, a pretty impressive job of stopping that. Unfortunately, the means and mechanisms they have used to do that go against a lot of what I was taught as an American to believe. And that not on my watch culture, Glenn, I think is what we're seeing a lot more here, which is I need every tool in my quiver because the American people want to sit there and watch The Bachelor on TV, and they don't really want to think about this. So you know what? I'm going to suck it up and see the worst that the world has to offer, and I'm going to use every tool at my disposal to protect them in that process. And I need to fight for every tool at my disposal to do that because if it happens on my watch, that's the end of it. 
that's the end of my career and then I couldn't live with myself and and that's the thought process that that occurs it's a it's a kind of righteousness right and the only thing that could be closer to the ideal case would be if the FBI said we have 24 hours to decrypt this phone or a bomb goes off somewhere and destroys a uh, two th- you know 1500 foot building somewhere in America and and several thousand people are going to die go like the 24 uh, TV show scenario that's the only thing that could be more perfect than this and it, and then you the, it boils down to those fundamental principles. Susie, you've been following this really closely. MacWorld's been right on top of it. You've written a fac. Uh, you've been posting stories about it regularly. Uh, you know, maybe we should go into some of the fundamentals. We're we're jumping ahead because we are full of outrage. But um, but you know what what is since this has been an evolving process and we've been learning more about it. You know, the FBI started out by asking for for one thing. I feel like their ask has uh, has shifted a little bit. But then um, there's also the surprising information about the iCloud password that came out in this last week. Yeah, so the FBI wants Apple to build like a, a side-loadable little version of iOS that can run on the RAM and won't touch anything else on this phone. They have a locked iPhone 5C that's running iOS 9, and it's locked with a four-digit PIN, which means everything on there is encrypted. Um, d- default encryption with a passcode has been you know part of iOS since iOS 8. So once you put a passcode on... That passcode is combined with your device ID, and that's the private key for encryption. So Apple cannot, Apple doesn't know your passcode. Apple can't break your passcode. They used to be able to extract data without un, from a locked phone running iOS 7 um, without uh, unlocking it. So they could get some data off because it wasn't you know, encrypted. And they could do a dump for law enforcement, and they used to do that. Um, and, and they're still being asked to do that a lot. There's a separate case in New York where they're being asked to do that on an iOS 7 phone belonging to an alleged drug dealer. And they're, they're just trying to, trying to get out of that business. Um, there's fewer phones out there running iOS 7. Um, when iOS 8 came out, um, police officers were actually, or I guess that was when iOS 7 came out, law enforcement was like, oh, this is the one with activation lock. Like, everyone should get this. Like, so yes. sometimes <laughs> Apple builds in security features and, you know, law enforcement's happy about it. But this encryption thing has been a problem for them. And it makes sense that Apple would do it. I mean, your phone now has like your health information on it. Your phone can be used to, you know, gain access to your house if you're using certain HomeKit devices. So, so you know, Apple isn't putting on this encryption just to thwart law enforcement, but that is a, a side effect that they're dealing with now. So the company, um, I'm sorry, the, the FBI has this phone. It was used by the shooter in the San Bernardino case, but it wasn't actually his personal phone. It was his work phone. So the more you kind of dig into the particulars of this case, the more it seems like maybe this isn't the best test case because, first of all, I mean, the county, the Department of Public Health, his employer, if they had been using any kind of multi-device management at all, you know, they would have a legal backdoor to get into it any time. Like, it's their property. And they've consented to the FBI to run this search. But um, the FBI can't brute force the passcode without knowing that the, you know, erase data after 10 failed attempts feature is turned off. So they want Apple to write sideloadable iOS that will kill that feature and that will also add a new vulnerability that's never been in iOS before, which is letting a computer make the passcode attempts to, you know, make it go faster and just they don't have to have an intern sitting there, you know, entering passcodes one at a time and then checking them off on a, on a clipboard or something. So they want to do that either through the lightning port or wirelessly. And that's like asking Apple to build a brand new vulnerability to their iOS. Um, the court order did say that, that Apple could keep it in Cupertino. They never had to, you know, put it any, uh, send it anywhere. They could destroy it as soon as it was done. It would be coded to only run on this one phone, you know, locked to the device. But Apple's saying, look, this is a dangerous precedent. We don't want to do any of this. And they're going to fight the order. Well, we also have the case that, uh, is it Jonathan, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, uh, uh, Zerdziowski? That was fascinating. Yeah, so he... Uh, By the way, he's very well known in the security industry. I was going to say, you must know this guy. And he, you know, and he wrote this whole uh, post about... And he's worked. Right, he's worked with the, the uh, law enforcement, sports law enforcement. Oh, I want to sidebar a second because I want to support something Rich you said. Oh, I didn't we'll come- even mention the iCloud thing either. Oh yeah, let's come back. <laughs> let's come back to that. So I want to sidebar one second, which is because uh, um, Rich, you mentioned this, and you've worked with law enforcement. And uh, and um, uh, Susie, I could, you can make your own statement on this as well, so we can make this clear. Is I support the FBI and all law enforcement's way to use every legal method to obtain every bit of evidence in any criminal proceeding. Yep. That's uh, I think an absolute uh, fundamental part of our democracy also. 
is that police powers are, you know, uh, mediated, but also uh, uh, are extensive in finding justice. And so uh, do I want all the data from this phone available if it's going to help in any way, uh, even if it doesn't help in any way? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Unequivocally. My issue is not about this being an extrajudicial process, which it is not. This is not I know go into the how much metadata is being swept up against um, maybe uh, both legal precedent and uh, judicial oversight and so forth in terms of NSA operations. Not, it, this doesn't even play into that. This is a basic thing of criminal evidence in a case uh, in which the law enforcement is absolutely justified to want it. So I have I have um, I have no I think right thinking person who supports the uh, Constitution of America could say there's anything wrong about what the FBI is attempting to do in terms of form rather than the specific thing that they're asking. So the dispute is really over what they're asking Apple as a third party to do that could disrupt uh, privacy globally for uh, forever, <laughs> ostensibly forever, uh, you know, practically making encryption illegal uh, of this nature, an un- unbreakable encryption that the government could never get into in any country, democracy, otherwise. That's the stakes. But in terms of the specific thing, I just want to make it clear that I, I am not somebody here saying... Um, I'm not sure anyone would interpret that way, saying that the FBI shouldn't have access. Absolutely. Everything in that phone, uh, it could be uh, absolutely valuable, but the stake of allowing something to occur that would let them have access, I think, is that is the crux. So anyway, I just want to mention that in passing. But uh, uh, sorry, I, j- I jumped ahead. But we were talking about um, uh, the issue of uh, – uh, I'm sorry. We should, we should go back to the iCloud thing. I, I, I went. Oh, oh, sorry, Jonathan Zdarsky. So, uh, you know, so he's somebody who is not. Um, again, same stance. Like he's supported law enforcement. He's testified. Yeah, he's an iOS forensic expert. Yeah, and he's uh, he's a very and he explained precisely the details that I have to go through to make a forensics tool that meets the legal uh, challenge and can be used. That was in court. fascinating. I had no idea about this. So he was basically saying there's two ways for these parties to work with law enforcement, and he's done both of them. So he has like a good perspective for both. You can be like when Apple extracts data from a phone running iOS 7, they're just acting as like a third party lab. There's other, you know, labs that do this. And then if, you know, something came off that phone that needed to, you know, be admissible in court, they might have to send someone to testify, but they wouldn't have to get into their exact methods. They could be like, you know, we're a third party lab and they have to convince them that, you know, they knew what they were doing, but they could say trade secrets and not get into, you know, what they did or how they did it. It's just you know, it's it's a lab service. But if um, this case, law enforcement is asking for a tool for them to use. They're saying, we don't want Apple to break any encryption. We just want them to, you know, write this little software. It's fine. So if it, it's a tool for um, law enforcement to use, that has to be held to a higher standard in court. It has to be accepted by the scientific community. It has to be, you know, looked at by these certification um, organizations. The, the National Institute of Justice um, can, you know, has to look at it. So it's, it would be impossible to, to have a tool that's being used as a, an instrument of law enforcement that, you know, is, is just secret to Apple and, and never gets out. So, but I mean, you know, just to, to, th- that might never come to play because, um, you know, they would have to get evidence off this phone that they wanted to use in court. They could get evidence off the phone and then, you know, kind of reverse police it, like try to find confirmation somewhere else that would be invisible. But th- that was just a fascinating, um, you know, angle that I hadn't thought of that if this is a new tool for law enforcement, like it can't be, you know, just some, some secret sauce that's cooked up in, a, in Apple's lab and then never gets out. Oh, and let's double back a second too with the uh, we we're talking about the iCloud password. Uh, oh, one, of yeah. the, one of the reasons this is starting to feel like a setup. I mean, Rich, you're right. This is a setup. We know this is a constructed case. They didn't cause the terrorist incident. I'm not suggesting a f- false flag, but with that in hand, this is sort of a perfect storm. It's owned by uh, a government entity that wants the phone unlocked, uh, and uh, you know terrorism was involved and blah blah blah. Right. So it's a perfect thing. Here's the reason it feels like a setup. And, and Susie, you, I know you've been writing about this more extensively. The iCloud password was changed uh, since the FBI yes. had access to the phone. That's what Apple's saying. Right. So they don't have the passcode to unlock the phone itself. But the phone is also you know, tied to an iCloud account. And that was a work iCloud account. So um, it was probably you know, tied to the shooter's work email. And at first, in one of the court filings, um, the FBI, like, so Apple has been helping them. And, you know, they don't want to do this one thing, like write this tool, but they were working with the FBI on the specific case. They gave them a bunch of other things to try. 
One of them was, oh, let's get the iCloud backups. So the last iCloud backup on Apple servers was October 19th, and the shooting happened December 2nd. So there's like six weeks where they don't have backups on the phone. They also got the call records from Verizon, and they saw that, you know, okay, he's using the phone. He was talking to his wife, who was, you know, um, also one of the perpetrators of this crime. Um, but And those calls weren't on the iCloud backup, so they were worried that they had to get into the phone and see that. So, I mean, I'm thinking if there were calls that weren't on the iCloud backup, he probably, you know, deleted all the evidence of that. But anyway, yeah, so the iCloud password was changed and the, the court filing was like, oh, you know, we, we, we were thwarted in this thing because someone changed the iCloud password. Uh-huh. And they, 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 <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the Department of Justice who was doing the court filing kind of made it sound like San Bernardino messed up. Um, but then San Bernardino said, no, it was the FBI who told us to do that. And, um, you know, Apple had said, why don't you take this guy's phone to a known Wi-Fi network, like to his house or his office, um, and plug it in and leave it overnight. And then if it's, you know, plugged in and to a charger overnight, it should do an iCloud backup. Um, but then since the password had been changed, you'd have to, you know, re-verify that on the phone that they can't unlock. So they weren't able to get the iCloud backup for that last six weeks. So it's like the more details you find, the more it's just like, oh, this investigation is kind of a mess. And I'm not super convinced that there would be useful stuff on the phone. But like Glenn said, that doesn't really matter. Like, you know, law enforcement's right to want to get into the phone. They're just wrong to ask Apple um, to do, to, you know, make software that will, that will allow them to, you know, brute force any phone they want. Speaking as an iCloud regular user also and uses iCloud backups, the idea that because the person stopped having backups six weeks before that point uh, and not to make light of the situation, the idea that that is, might have been intentional, sure, it could have been intentional, but iCloud backups. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. That's my thing. It's like, it probably just broke, you know, too. Like, that's how, how many times you're like, oh, you haven't been backed up for how long? Uh, or he stopped connecting that phone to Wi-Fi because he was, you know, worried about that or I don't know. Like, so yeah. the, the shooter had a personal phone. He had a personal computer and they d- tried to destroy both. Um, I think I read somewhere that they, they might still be able to get some stuff from the hard drive from his computer. Like it wasn't destroyed well enough. But it sounds like the personal phone is Call toast. So that's why they're so worried about this one. Hey, Rich. So so here's a fundamental thing, too. We're talking about iCloud. And we know that a lot of data is accessible because it's stored in iCloud in a form that Apple can gain access Two, things that are synced and left there, you know, contacts, calendar entries, notes, uh, and email that hasn't been retrieved or that's left if you're using IMAP and you're leaving it on the server, all that's available. What would you think is on this phone that would actually be useful in any way? I mean, that's the related question is how much, uh, and I think uh, Jonathan uh, Zudziarski also has a post about that, like uh, why he thinks there wouldn't be very much um, forensic information that would be useful there. But, but given that the phone is encrypted, what are they going to get out of unlocking it that they can't get out of accessing the iCloud account? They would get almost everything. There might be some stuff in Keychain uh, that when we get an iCloud backup, uh, iCloud backups won't take any you know certain data that's marked in applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, it won't necessarily go up to an iCloud backup. They're, they're grasping straws. I mean, photos, really if they're it. not using iCloud photo library, which ostensibly they weren't. Yeah, so there's you know most of the application data, most of the the settings and and configurations and everything would come up. But you know, look, there's a reason that I use local encrypted backups when I need to restore my new iPhones as I get them because there's so much data that it you know isn't on there. But mostly it's it tends to be like password related for email accounts, those those kinds of things. If I remember right, iCloud uh, Keychain, the way that works is the while the keychain is synchronized across iCloud, iCloud there's no actually ability to decrypt. That information, uh, Apple can't decrypt iCloud keychain information again without a passcode and some additional information. Correct. Now, there's a lot of nuances with iCloud keychain that aren't worth getting into here. I wrote a Macworld Macworld article a while ago, uh, a couple years ago on that, when they did a bunch of big changes. It was about two years ago. And the... But again, we're we're kind of getting into the semantics of it here, and I I think it is actually worth taking a bit of a step back. Please. Uh, The iCloud backup will have most everything that would be of interest. The FBI, we, you know, they're saying, we want to leave no stone unturned. That's a load of garbage. The FBI does that all the time in all sorts of other cases. Uh, you know, they, they definitely, hey, there's no indications of further imminent attacks and those kinds of things. But I get it. They want to, you know, get as much info, info as they can. Um, and this is just another source. Again, I do believe, though, that this was fully about breaking open the legal issues. And, and that's where I want to kind of focus us. This particular case, Apple unlocking this phone, what we have is a situation where at a technical level, there is a flaw 
and how these are encrypted. Now, right now, if I lose my phone and China gets it, they can't do this. The feds, they can't get into it. Nobody can because of the restrictions, particularly uh, it's even harder on the new phones with the secure enclave, although there are ways around it. And the vulnerability is, is Apple can rewrite the firmware, rewrite the actual version of iOS, and that would enable the things that the FBI wants so they can still try and brute force the encryption. Mm -hmm. And if it's a four or even a six character passcode that they can get through that in a reasonable amount of time. The bigger issue is that the FBI has very publicly stated through Director Comey that they believe they should have persistent access to all encrypted communications and devices. Mm -hmm. It's not conspiracy theory. It's his own quotes. It's been multiple places, multiple times. So we know that that's their objective here is not the one phone necessarily. Uh, that you know they're making a big stink of it in this particular case, but that Wall Street Journal article has shown there's a bunch more that they want. They're using various court orders. This is the one that they decided to make big in public. Uh, it was actually originally none of this was supposed to be public. It was the FBI that made the decision to make it public, not Apple. And so from that from that perspective, again, longer term, we worry about it. Okay, so there's this flaw here. What if Apple plugs that flaw? Then what kind of uh, what are the long term implications? Does that mean that the FBI now wants is going to go change the law to make it illegal for us to have those secure devices? Right. This is my concern. Right. This is the thin edge of the wedge issue. Is that we're talking part? The current issue appears to be largely about can Apple engineer a you know retroactively engineer a backdoor sure. access. The other part is exactly what you're saying is how does this affect? Can Apple then continue its battle to make a, an unbreakable encryption system? Well, it's not just Apple. So again, I'm sorry, Google. Are, right. Yeah, people are positioning this, and this is again, we are losing the positioning on this for on this battle because we're getting caught up in the technologies and whether there's an iCloud backup and somebody screwed up here or there. Look, none of that matters. Uh, terrorism case versus a, a drug dealing case, none of that matters. The actual flaw, the actual techniques the FBI wants, I mean, this is again, they want us to focus on these issues because that does potentially make Apple look unreasonable. A one-off tool could be used once, not necessarily given over in all these other cases. Um, sure, if that was the limitation, maybe I wouldn't have an issue with it. The problem is, as we know, in the bigger picture context, uh, the FBI is pushing for legislation to make it that we cannot have fully encrypted devices. That has massive implications for business, massive implications that go beyond the phone. Our financial systems rely on this, these kinds of technologies. Uh, all, the, all the corporate work that I do with large enterprises and with governments and with security vendors, like that's my day-to-day -day job. If we actually can't legally have that core root level of encryption, that's bad. That is That's really bad. Uh, I want massive ramifications. I want to take us back in time for one moment, too, because this is a battle that was fought over 25 years ago when PGP, Phil Zimmerman, uh, who is, you know, he should be a legend because he didn't just develop, uh, you know, a kind of wonky system that's still being used for um, – for uh, for secure communications, uh, especially message-based communications, pretty good privacy or PGP. That's not, uh, and that's very clever, and he deserves lots of credit for it. Uh, but he also was willing to take a stand and uh, and battle uh, the courts because uh, uh, encryption was uh, classified as ammunition at the time in the 90s, and the uh, Clinton administration uh, pursued this against him for years, and it was finally uh, dropped. Uh, but they felt that his invention of PGP, because it was available source code in the utility worldwide. Uh, violated export controls for munitions. And um, that was pursued for a long time. And remember, that was the era of the clipper chip, of course, when the Clinton administration was uh, wanted to have encryption that would have a backdoor chip in it. So it would be perfectly secure, except that the government could have access at any time, uh, ostensibly with a court order or what have you. And um, there's been issues since like that. But I think we're, we're it's like whoever lost that uh, 20 years ago, you know, 20 years ago, the FBI or the, Fed, the feds dropped at 96, the criminal investigation. This is the same battle today. It's the same thing. Do we have the right, you know, PGP, if done right, you know, forget the software flaws uh, that have been developed over time. Things have been improved. If you use PGP correctly, it's unbreakable. It's unbreakable. You need to do social engineering, keystroke logging, all the usual things on either end, but the, the protocol itself, fundamentally how it works, it remains unbreakable uh, if implemented correctly. And we're looking at that now. You know, should PGP have been illegal? If they'd won that then, we wouldn't have this phone encryption system now. We'd be in a very different system. Uh, and we, I feel like this battle is not identical, but it's the same uh, law enforcement issue or, or uh, you know, national security uh, issue as well. Is uh, Does there exist a fundamental right for people 
to uh, you know for companies to make and people to employ. So you know we're you're right we're we're, we're um, missing the bigger picture if we talk just about Apple. We could talk about every tech company, but we're even talking about. Rich, I have this great idea for a perfect encryption system. My name is Phil uh, Bimmerman, and I'm going to invent something called BGC, and I want to do it in my garage and just release it for free. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, these new rules that prohibit encryption that, you know, ostensibly in the future, you can't do that. That's actually illegal, Mr. Bill Bimmerman. Uh, you can't come out with your new software because you'd be violating federal law. And if you released it, you'd be subject to jail and imprisonment, and the software would be banned. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? I mean, fundamentally, is is me and my garage up to a, a multi-billion dollar multinational company would have the same restriction. I, I don't care about you and your garage, okay? My job <laughs> is to, you know, <laughs> my day-to-day -day job is to build secure and, and help people, you know, build secure online services and, and technologies. I, you, you know, again, I work with, in some cases, some very large companies that have fundamental need to encrypt and and need these technologies. So it's not just about, you know, chats and WhatsApp and, uh, you know, sending, sending secure messages to, to loved ones. It's not just about, and believe me, there's a whole host of stuff I want to get into there as well, but you know, it, it comes down to well, corporate uh, espionage. If that technology yeah. is illegal. Like if you really fundamentally, you have to put a back door in on a phone, you know, it's not like a weird slippery slope argument from a technical level. The, we have these algorithms and tools. They're there. I can write a crypto thing right now the government can't get into right, right now, uh, and I could build that that toolbox. So we figure out where those lines are. That is ugly, and uh, you know, and, and going to be very very messy process. It has dramatic implications for businesses, for privacy in the home, for you know, absolutely everything. I mean, uh, so that's again what a lot of this comes down to. I'm not trying to be alarmist. The truth is. Again, stated position of the director that they want to have access to anything that, that's encrypted. The focus has been on the consumer side. Uh, they use subpoenas to get things out of the business side and figure out where those lines are drawn because the cat's out of the bag. We know how to do you know, that level of secure crypto already. Um, what are the implications? Is it going to restrict companies from like Apple from building you know, the, these core services? Do they have to put in these backdoor keys? The next level is is we know that it is impossible for that to be done without weakening the overall security of the system. That's where the FBI and others are being disingenuous. They think that there's some magical, you know, as as uh, Hillary Clinton has put it, some some um, Manhattan level project to figure this out. Actually, we've got a 30 year Manhattan project with crypto. We yeah. we know it. Okay, it's math. It's math. And there's not a way to do this that would allow. You could do it actually. And allow small-scale access, like one person in a locked room in one lab in the FBI, we could probably pull it off. The problem is, is all of those other law enforcement agencies that want to have access to this data, uh, all of the international groups that want to have access to the data, it just isn't scalable. Well, and then you get you get this is a slippery slope outside the U.S. too. Is when you have uh, many countries have very close relationships between uh, military or government and commerce, and so in China it's well known. It's not it's not even hidden. You go to the website. The military owns corporations. The military uses uh, hacking assets. It's also well documented hacking assets to for corporate espionage purposes to give an advantage to companies that they own. I mean that's not even so that's you know that's not a uh, privacy thing, but that's just like yet another example of of what could go down. Rich, I want to ask you too. There's a flip side too. Is if America sets policies, if we were to set policies that required some sort of uh, law enforcement backdoor, uh, how does this affect uh, the rest of the world? You know, Europe has very strong we, – we've found uh, – you know, they have very strong privacy requirements against companies, but not necessarily strong requirements against government intervention in um, private uh, uh, ownership of, of, you know, information of your own data. Do you think – would you find companies, you know, uh, would Israel or France or some other country, you know, Germany – come out with products or new standards that were only um, that they would reject American products uh, as a result because they wanted things that were more secure or would this wind up changing uh, products worldwide? Well, they're just going to want access. And that's, we've already seen that occur. BlackBerry was forced or they were still researching motion at the time was forced to open up their system in India. Uh, and they had a system that the Indian government was unable to monitor. Uh, that has since been expanded. I know for sure to UAE uh, and a couple of other countries, I think possibly China as well, and, and I'm, although I'm not 100% sure about China. So we know that once we weaken this here, it gets weakened everywhere. All these other countries are going to go ahead and require it, uh, particularly because once it's a U.S. company that's been required to open it up. Uh, they're, you know, and, and look, Europeans love to make fun of us for the NSA spying. Their own government spy on them way worse than we do. 
and and that's kind of well known within intelligence circles and it's not even all that it's not that big of a secret uh it's just that they have more privacy from corporations than we do here in the u.s but uh yeah i mean it it is a massive global issue you wrote a mac world piece that i thought was great about that in that it could affect the competitiveness of american businesses on one side uh but it also means if you're in a country that doesn't have freedom now it ain't going to have one it ain't going to have it later um well, you know, the American Revolution could not have occurred if this technology had existed at that period in time. I mean, let's just be completely honest about it. Right. So it's a, it's rough. I mean, this is – I think we're all over the map because we're pretty emotional about this. Well, I think but it's – every different – it involves so many different aspects. And it's – you know, this, this is the thing. I'm going to quote from Comey's uh, uh, FBI statement. He said, the San Bernardino litigation isn't about trying to set a precedent or set any kind of message. It's about the victim's injustice. You take those two sentences – and we've talked, you know, forty minutes so far about why those it's inaccurate. It's inaccurate. I mean, sure, well, they're it is provably about, wrong. Is what it's not inaccurate. I mean, they are provably wrong. Right. It, it's yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's it's everybody. So let's let's um before we I know we've talked a lot about this. I want to back out into a different corner. <laughs> so many corners, uh, Susie. You've been compiling a list, and we've been going through this too about. Um, so this is not just an Apple issue, and they're focusing on Apple because it's high profile and and. Um, uh, but Apple's a scrapper, which is interesting. You'd think they might have chose somebody else. But uh, the iPhone is the issue, uh, the device in question here. A lot of different opinions, uh, different people. And Bill Gates, I just saw, uh, I think it was yesterday, he supports a uh, a very narrow request. He thinks it's fine as long as it's scoped appropriately to be actually limited in the way the FBI claims, which I feel is extremely naive on his he part. He tried to kind of walk it back this morning. Oh, is that right? Oh, I didn't see yeah. that. Yeah. Um... On Tuesday, he told Bloomberg that the news reports have mischaracterized his statements. Um, <laughs> really? Uh, he oh, softened his stance, said there are sets of safeguards where the government shouldn't have to be completely blind. But in the end, the courts are going to decide. I don't know. He kind of tried to walk it back a little bit. <laughs> but, we've got, but, you know, with Google, Facebook, uh, you know, I actually was fascinated by Michael Hayden, who I'm sure I don't agree with on most things. The former head of the NSA is like, hey, you know, actually... Having strong encryption the government can't break, that's a consequence of having a strong encryption that no government can break. It's actually sort of a good thing. And, and he's talked about this now uh, broadly. Uh, we already mentioned Rush Limbaugh. So, what, you know, what's the – there seems to be a lot of back and forth. We don't have every tech company or every prominent individual supporting one side or the other of this debate. Yeah. Um, it's It's been kind of all over the place. Um uh, Zuckerberg is on our side and Google, but they were kind of wishy-washy about it. Um, obviously, Donald Trump is on the other side and even called for a boycott of Apple. Um, I know AT&T, was it a couple weeks before this specific case came out, said, you know, Apple doesn't have any right to – the head of AT&T, uh, Reynolds Stevenson, <laughs> said Apple doesn't have a leg to stand on about uh, about this. If th that They're not in a position to deny courts things, right? Yeah, AT and T, who rolled over when um, and built secret monitoring rooms that were were illegal without question at the time, and were only retroactively made legal by an act of Congress later. Which I didn't think you could do that and make laws retroactively apply, but apparently you can. I got uh, retweeted by some anon ops. Uh, uh, site uh, or a tw account with a large number of followers when I made some comment about uh, uh, Apple and AT&T's difference and AT&T rolling over. And I, uh, I was, it was fascinating. It was uh, <laughs> it's like got a lot of sudden, like, hey, why is everyone looking at that tweet? It's like, oh, what are the uh, sites that supports? John McAfee said he can just hack it for the government. He's like, yeah. Well, that's the oh, thing too. Well, look, when you're on that much meth, you don't. <laughs> I mean, like, He's you, like, it'll take me three weeks. Your fingers are so fast. You don't even need to do a computer controlled brute force attack. He can see through time. <laughs> you know, here's the thing that gets to me, I feel like, is um, it's the banality of evil or the banality of uh, power, right? Is that, um, you know, I've always found uh, science fiction, fantasy novels, uh, and even some historical ones unbelievable because, uh, you know, what does Darth Vader want? What does Emperor Palpatine want? Power? What's he, I can't figure out what he does with it, right? And, you know, what does the devil want with power? You know, it's all these things like the, theologically or, or whatever. And so it's very easy when you look at, at movies, literature, religion to say, like, uh, people are struggling for power, uh, absolute power. And in reality, it's the mechanics of it are, um, you know, the FBI wants power. The Obama administration wants power. Many past administrations have wanted power in order to do what they think is right. Everyone, every villain thinks they're correct. Every good person thinks they're correct. They think they're doing something that's right. Very few people say chortle and rub their hands together and say, oh, ha, 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 chaos and evil. Uh, that's, a, that's a James Bond situation, right? Um, and so in this case, you have people who I, I'm sure 
all in their heart of hearts believe they're doing uh, the right thing for the best people. And they're like, I got to get my hands dirty. That's what happens. You, you get your hands dirty, you do whatever, because we're scrappers and we need to make this happen. Not so, on my watch. Yeah. Exa- yeah. Like I am not going to let that building get blown up. Right. I mean, think about the people who are working at the FBI when the trade centers went down and what, and what, how they felt, right. Their careers were ruined. And they also, you know, I'm sure they all drank themselves into early graves because if they'd seen the signs and weren't able to get anyone to listen or they'd miss the signs, how they feel. So I, I get all that, but it's the banality of it. It's not people saying, here's a plot to destroy people's privacy worldwide forever. It's not how the world works. Well, here's a, a much simpler way that I'm starting to, to kind of word it mm. um, around the issue. And uh, it was inspired by my illness. And occasionally, uh, like many people, when I'm sick, I plop down on the couch in front of Netflix. And uh, I gave myself one day to recover and watch some TV. <laughs> Literally hired a babysitter because my wife was out with my uh, one of my daughters at a Girl Scout thing. So I could just sit and recover. Oh, my God. I was watching uh, Furious 7, so the latest of the Fast and Furious movie. And the MacGuffin in that movie was a black box that if you got your hands on it would give you access to – Every camera, every phone, every you know sensor, and so there's a, a huge chase sequence uh, in the end when they're in L.A. and the hackers trying to hack the helicopter, which has got the black box in it because the bad guys got it, uh, and the bad guys are able to real time with through facial recognition and stuff, and and they're accessing literally. You drive by somebody's phone as they're in a phone conversation, and the camera in the back would be sending the video stream that this could read, getting all that data at one point. Uh, I think back to the Batman episode where he took over all of the phones, uh, which whichever <laughs> Batman movie that was of uh, of the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, I think back to our, you know, one of our favorite sneakers, where it was no more secrets. It was the one box that could decrypt everything that we laughed at as security professionals because it doesn't exist. Uh, I, you know, uh, Die Hard. I mean, which how many movies have the MacGuffin? That thing that they're chasing, which is the magical box that gives them access to every technology on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. They can get into every phone. They can listen in on every conversation. It's in, it's all the time. It's it's great. So like the James yeah. Bond, uh, Skyfall, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, season two, episode three. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that's what the FBI wants to build. I mean, that's what this comes down to. That is what they want to build. They want to build that would be cool. the MacGuffin. They yeah. want to build the thing that gets onto every device, that gets into every service. This isn't paranoia. It is their stated position in interviews and in public policy speeches. And they They don't want to do it to – they don't want to do it because they want to listen to us discuss recipes and boyfriends and girlfriends. They want to do it because at the moment they need it, they want to flip a switch and have it accessible for criminal investigation. With the right, you know, with the right controls, right. With warrants, uh, the you know, best intents, whatever level of access. They already have a lot of this. They're using stingrays. As we're talking, I had a mm-hmm. news alert that the U.S. Marshal Service has used uh, 6,000 stingrays or something throughout the U.S. to listen in on phone conversations and track movements. Um, you know, they Again, they want every legal tool, and they want this to be a legal tool. Yeah. They don't want to abuse it. I don't think they do. I'm not, I'm not that level of paranoid. I, I'm not going to go buy a ranch. No, no, it does, it, it, you can posit that they are pure as driven snow and that there's no power grab. And this is entirely about legitimate criminal purposes. You can posit that because it doesn't matter if that's true or not. It has the same effect. So you can, you can state with certainty that it is irrelevant whether the intent is to be as pure as that. How could they possibly ensure that something exactly. that powerful, that every <laughs> law enforcement agency in the country also wants access to? That they could possibly keep that safe and secure, that it would possibly never be abused. Turns out our lives are all a lead up to a Bond film conclusion. It is, but I, I, Glenn, we're having this debate. I'm getting all the emails, and I'm watching that freaking movie, going, "That's what they're trying to build." It, it, it's I just also- weird too how they like they. Like a lot of the arguments are that they used to do this and it used to be, you know, technically feasible. And then they went and like, you know, improved their software to make it not feasible. And like the government wants us to think that that was, you know, wrong of Apple to do almost like it's it's like their fault. So it's like that's messed up because, I mean, Apple, they're they're putting we're putting so much more of our personal lives on these phones and of course they would want to you know make encryption stronger that's that's a laudable thing and it bothers me that the government is spinning it that you know apple used to be just fine with this and now they're not and that's a change on apple's part and that's apple you know not wanting to play the game anymore and 
you know, I think Apple is doing what's best for them and for their customers, which is, you know, producing a really secure product and then, you know, explaining to people why that's important. You know, and one of the things that really gets me about this is that if it's not a lot in the FBI and, and some of the law enforcement agencies, they see this as similar to other, you know, getting access to banking records if they need it, <laughs> um, gaining access to a wiretap if they need it. But it's not. I mean, this is I, I can't remember the exact wording in my article, but I mean, this is the equivalent of being able to listen to the whispers of the man or woman in bed next to you. This is the equivalent of being able to recall all of the times you tell your children you love and encourage them. This is the equivalent of being able to read your deepest, darkest thoughts when it's late at night and you can't sleep and you're depressed and you start looking things up online. No government has ever, ever had that kind of ability. And that's what they're asking for now. And yes, maybe it will prevent some terrorist attacks, but you know, those who sacrifice – what's the, the famous quote? Those who sacrifice you know, their freedom for security deserve neither. It, this led me, of course, to consult the George Orwell book, 1984, and I'm not saying we live in a Big Brother society. I'm saying this is the thing that enables a Big Brother society. Yeah. It's the tool, it's the tool we need for the very worst of the dystopias to, to occur. Oh. Well, you know what? Welcome to Panopticon, boys and girls, or, or you can break all the mirrors, one of the two. But uh, I, think our I think our time is up to discuss this. We'll have more conversation about this. And Rich, thank you for joining us to, to bring your insight. Thanks so this. much for coming back, Rich. No, really thanks for letting you. me express my anger. <laughs> I, I needed this too. I'm off Twitter Get at the moment, out. and I needed some place to uh, talk about it. Hey, folks, we're going to try something a little different too. We're, uh, we're looking for a little audio feedback from you for future episodes. So uh, it could be including, you know, brief opinions, please be brief because we don't have that much time on this podcast uh, and questions and things you want to talk about. So you can always email us at podcast at macworld.com. Go to macworld.com, leave comments uh, on the article that posting for this podcast. But you can also call us now at 415-712-CAST. That's 415-712-CAST or 2278. We'll have the number in the show notes as well. And leave us a message. Uh, again, be pithy. Tell us where you're calling from. Tell us your first name or your whole name or use a pseudonym and tell us why. That's okay too. Uh, you could also, if you're savvy with QuickTime, want to use QuickTime Player to record audio uh, from your uh, earbuds or something else, record a brief QuickTime audio and send it to podcast at macworld.com. We'd like to try to figure out if we can integrate a little bit of audio feedback from you in the future and have this be uh, not exactly a call-in show, but we, we really desperately want to know um, your response on things. Uh, and we don't want to be talking at you all the time. We want to listen to you. Uh, so please uh, give us a call there. And uh, thank you again, Rich. And uh, Susie, great to talk to you. Uh, Lex, we'll be back with possibly less outrage or maybe more. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. This has been the Macworld hey, Podcast. anytime you need an angry white man on your podcast, I'm here for you. Uh, it's very hard to find them, so I appreciate you making yourself available <laughs> in that way. Uh, this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 496 for February 23rd, 2016. I've been and remain Glenn Fleischman. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.